Brands tend to tell two different types of stories. They're macro stories and they're micro stories. So macro stories are at the core of your organization's DNA. They highlight your company's story, your founding myth, these are the stories about kind of, you know, the story of your founders, you know, what drove them to launch your business, kind of your why, um, and the foundation for everything that your company does. So really, that's where you want to see a consistency with your brand storytelling. However, micro stories are the lifeblood of your storytelling strategy. They are that always on approach to building on your macro story. You will hear more about brand stories and how they can tell them better in this episode of Social Pros. I'm Jay Bear from Convince and Convert, joined as always by Adam Brown from Salesforce Marketing Cloud, joined this week by Jessica Jolio, who's the co-author of a fantastic new book, The Laws of Brand Storytelling. Adam, what a show. What a show. We're lucky, Jay, to have so many smart people on this show, and Jessica is certainly one of them. Brand storytelling is is a topic we talk about often here, but I think Jessica, like we just heard, made a great articulation between macro and micro types of stories and some of the mistakes that brands make and the opportunities that so many brands have when they bring more than just the marketing or the comms people into the storytelling effort. Her new book is spectacular. As I mentioned in the show, I absolutely recommend it unconditionally for Social Pros listeners. Uh, If you listen to this show, you're going to love the book, The Laws of Brand Storytelling, super relevant to the work that you do. You're going to enjoy this episode. Coming up, Jessica Jolio, co-author, The Laws of Brand Storytelling, this week on Social Pros. Jessica Jolio, co-author of the extraordinary new book, The Laws of Brand Storytelling. Welcome to Social Pro. So great to have you here and congratulations on another extraordinary book with your pal, Katerina Walter. This this book is super practical, super useful, very timely. And I got to tell you, if there's an audience in the world uh, that needs this book, it is the listeners of Social Pros. It will be uh, it will be their Bible. They'll never take it off their desk. So welcome and congratulations. Thank you so much, Jay. That is just the best introduction. Um, I'm so thrilled to be back on Social Pros and excited to talk things all social media and brand storytelling with you today. It's always great to have you. Jessica was also a longtime contributor to the Convince and Convert website. Some of our most popular posts of all time were written by her. So thank you, as always, for your support and your friendship. She's joining us live from London town. How long have you been in uh, in London now? Several years. I have been in London three and a half years now. Can you believe it? It feels like it's just flown by. Despite the fact that her Twitter handle is still Savvy Bostonian because she, you know, started off as sort of like a Boston expert and it was like became such an expert, she moved to London. Um, so, <laughs> you know, Savvy Londoner really should be your Twitter handle now, but but I guess, you know. I know, you know, or Jessica Jolio or something like that. But you know what? I actually felt like my last name is so hard to spell it is. that it, Savvy Bostonian, you know what? I might not live in London anymore or live in Boston anymore, but... I am always going to be a Bostonian at heart. So it's part of my brand. Yeah. For a lot of people, savvy is also hard to spell. So I get it, but I'm just just, just going to throw it out there. I welcome the debate. I've been challenged so many times on it. And you know what? I'm just sticking with it. We should do a whole show on that, uh, Adam, on on people having Twitter handles now that aren't their names still. And just like Mm -hmm. clinging to like, you know what? I refuse (laughs) to change. Like, I don't care. I'm going to keep keep on keeping on. Steadfast with with, with keeping it stable. I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Jessica, you've been doing this kind of work for a number of years. You have been a major contributor to the social media and digital marketing success of some of the world's most iconic brands. You know this as well as anybody. 
why do brands need this book? Like why, what are they still doing wrong? So a big inspiration for us in writing this book was that brand storytelling's changed. You know, a lot of people seem to be taking the topic of storytelling and kind of confusing it with with content or content marketing. And really, we we believe brand storytelling used to be about this big product launch or polished commercial and we still think companies believe this to be true. So we really wanted to write a book that laid down the law that talks about how storytelling isn't necessarily about projecting your desired image of your company or your products. It's not about dropping overly branded stories into marketing campaigns. It's really about bridging kind of the gap between, you know, how you talk about your business and your customer experience. So customers are more empowered than ever before. And your brand isn't necessarily what you say it is anymore. It's what consumers say it is. And really in the book, we talk about how you can leverage storytelling to capture customers' hearts and minds and prioritize emotional connections with your customers. So to be in the moment, have those authentic conversations, and to share relevant, inspiring stories that move and motivate people to take action. Does the rise of influencer marketing mean that brands have to focus less on their storytelling because other people are telling them, or do they need to focus on having a more consistent story so that the fact that all these different people are telling the story, it actually makes sense across the board? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, we see a lot of brands are leveraging influencer marketing and they should be. I think there's a lot of value in influencer marketing. I think the key though is brands tend to tell two different types of stories. Their macro stories and their micro stories. So macro stories are at the core of your organization's DNA. They highlight your company's story, your founding myth. These are the stories about kind of, you know, the story of your founders, you know, what drove them to launch your business, kind of your why, um, and the foundation for everything that your company does. So really, that's where you want to see a consistency with your brand storytelling. However, micro stories are the lifeblood of your storytelling strategy. They are that always-on approach to building on your macro story. So that's where you can have a little bit more flexibility in the types of stories that you tell. So when you think about influencers, I think it comes down to the goals that you have. You know, are you leveraging influencers around a specific campaign initiative or a specific area of your business that you want to highlight? Or are you really trying to, perhaps your brand isn't really kind of perceived in a certain way and you really want to speak to that core of your why, then I would leverage influencers in that capacity. So to answer the question, there's a bit of flexibility. So it really comes down to your goals. Are you looking for them to tell that macro story or are you looking for them to tell those core elements of the micro stories that you tell as your business? Jessica, one of the uh, things you said earlier was laying down the law uh, in brand storytelling. The name of your book is The Laws of the Brand law. Storytelling. I like that device, but I'm curious, you know, what is that, that biggest mistake that you find that marketing and communications folks make when they think they are storytelling, where in reality, they aren't. You mentioned the macro, macro, you, we talked uh, you know, about influencer. What do you, when you come into an organization, what's the first thing you see and you go, oh, this isn't brand storytelling. <laughs> well, I think I mentioned before, you know, a lot of times people mistake content with storytelling. You know, I was just at Web Summit in Lisbon, which is like this week-long event, one of the biggest marketing events in Europe, as well as, you know, startup and tech. But, you know, a lot of people were on stage from mega brands just talking about, you know, we do storytelling around this. And then you go and actually look at what they're doing on social media or other channels. And you're like, this isn't actually really storytelling. It's, it's just content. So, you know, I would say there's a lot of misconceptions there around what truly is storytelling versus what is um, 
purely kind of different elements of content that you tell. I also think there's a misconception that brand storytelling is only a marketing function. And I think, you know, we as marketers, and, and I'm guilty of this, right? I started my career in marketing and PR, and we tend to naturally gravitate towards storytelling. But if you truly want storytelling to be ingrained in the customer experience that you provide as your business, you really need to look across all the different elements of your company from sales to human resources to customer support and think about how even your employees or your suppliers or your partners can be kind of ingrained in kind of telling that consistent, cohesive story and sharing that about your brand. I also think another misconception is around stories being boring and saying, I don't actually want to tell stories. I just want to kind of do content and do marketing and do sales because we don't have an exciting story to tell. So I see that a lot as kind of an excuse. And I, and I think, you know, the people who say that or say, you know, my industry or my business isn't exciting really aren't looking across their business to kind of to pull those stories and have that journalistic mindset to bring that out. To that point, um, I think oftentimes, and I fall into this, uh, this, this, this fault, we think of brand storytelling as being purely a B2C type thing. This is a mm-hmm. consumer. Storytelling is around the consumer. But to your point, storytelling can be very much about that B2B side. It can be about embedding that story into the fabric of an organization throughout the organization. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I think that's one of my frustrations when people say, you know, I'm in B2B, my brand is not interesting. It's, it's, not, it's not something that I can tell stories around. I think some of the top brand storytellers aren't there, out there are the ones in the B2B space. And, you know, you have brands like GE, HubSpot that do kind of great jobs, Cisco, even has done some amazing efforts in brand storytelling. So I actually, I think it's all about really coming down to knowing who you are, kind of knowing your purpose and really understanding, you know, what messages are going to resonate kind of with the end buyer. Because at the end of the day, it's, even if it's B2B, it's essentially human to human. So what are the stories that you can tell about your business in the B2B space to actually resonate with the end buyer? I'm glad you mentioned Cisco. They are do such a great job. Carmen Hill from Cisco, who runs their talent brand program, was a guest on Social Pros a few months ago. One of my favorite episodes of 2018. Go to socialpros.com or wherever you get your podcasts and look for that episode, Carmen Hill at Cisco. You'll learn a lot about the ins and outs of their program. Jessica, I love what you talked about that that content marketing and brand storytelling aren't the same thing. I think we get so concerned about platform now. We think, wow, what are we going to do on Instagram? Wow, what are we going to do? Now we got to do stories all the time. Oh, man, we got, we got a podcast. We got to do a podcast. And, and, and we tend to think about platform first and then think about how we can wedge a story into that platform. I suspect that you and Ekaterina would, would advise people to think about the story first and then worry about the platform. But, but how do people actually make that shift in the real world? Like, how do you change your process or your thinking to not get seduced by LinkedIn is our strategy and it's not a strategy, it's just a platform? You know, Jay, it's not an easy question to answer, right? And this is something pretty much every company struggles with. It's all about, we think we want to run a contest on Instagram. We want to do this tactical campaign. And I, and I think that's the key right there is you have to kind of get out of this tactical mentality and really start with the strategy. Okay. We want to, you know, we have a goal to, we have a new product coming out. We want to tell, you know, an employee driven story about how we're a great place to work. 
you know, you need to start with the objective is what is, what are we trying to achieve? What is the story that we want to tell? And then you have to kind of drive down a bit deeper and say, okay, well, what are the right channels that we can actually pull in to do this? And, you know, I think for me, a great example came from Oreo actually in the UK. And I might've even covered this for Convince and Convert. I have to, I think I might've, but Oreo actually, there was a solar eclipse happening in the UK and Oreo said, you know what? If you think about it, the Oreo cookie actually looks a lot like an eclipse, right? (laughs) If you think about what the Oreo cookie could be kind of covering, um, you know, essentially the eclipse, the moon covering the sun. So they actually ran kind of a storytelling driven campaign using a bunch of different channels, including out of home billboards and Piccadilly Circus, where really kind of showing, you know, they wanted to tell the story of what was happening in the eclipse, basically using the Oreo cookie as the kind of the, uh, the eclipse kind of star of the show. And I thought they did such a great job because they paired out of home in Piccadilly Circus with this kind of virtual billboard. They actually also eclipsed the Sun newspaper. So there's actually a newspaper in the UK called The Sun, and they did a translucent cover with actually the Oreo cookie eclipsing the sun, which I thought was incredibly, which whoever came up with that idea really deserves a raise because that was incredibly clever. It just makes me smile as a marketer. But then what they did is they leveraged other social media channels to really pulse out unique kind of content and creative talking about kind of, you know, what's happening with the eclipse in real time. And the reason why it actually worked really well in the UK, you know, in addition to being creative is it was actually an overcast day in the UK. So nobody could actually see the eclipse happening. (laughs) So Oreo had done all of this planning and people actually tuned in to watch the kind of the billboards in Times Square and their social media channels to actually learn kind of what was happening with the eclipse, you know, where the sun was in relation to the moon and how this was happening. And, you know, just the whole idea of kind of taking into Oreo's kind of wonder filled and kind of creative piece to their kind of storytelling, it, it worked incredibly well. So I think that that's a great example of how you took the initiative of there's going to be this major event happening. How can we tell a story using our products that don't necessarily make it feel like we're, you know, hitting people over the head with our products and we're doing it in a really, in a way that actually adds value. And I think that's actually quite a clever way to take a real time event and tell a brand story around it. Jessica, I also think that's a great example of kind of the make lemonade out of lemons, uh, where you have a situation here where you're likely going to have a lot of chatter that is negative um, around, hey, we can't even see the, the freaking moon, freaking sun uh, type, uh, type things. And I think that brings me to, to a question I have. I think too oftentimes, you know, we, I think a lot of people think that social is a great platform for brand storytelling because you have that interaction and engagement, but you also have the challenge with it of, interruptions. You know, storytelling is you typically one person telling the story to, to many people, but when you get interrupted and you get distracted, it can create some challenges. How do you work with your clients and how do you consult your clients to, to be able to accept that and to kind of think ahead, much like Oreo did in your perfect example? I really talk to them about prioritizing your channel mix and really thinking across every channel. And the irony is I do specialize in social media, but I think businesses today need to think across all of their online and offline channels. Because the the thing is, right, social media channels in a way could be rented land, right? So you at any time could see Instagram or Facebook or Twitter could change their algorithm 
algorithm or the way the channels work. And that could have a big impact on your business. You know, this, you know, it just happened with Instagram where we're actually starting to see, you know, they're cracking down on kind of bots and fake likes, which I think is a positive thing, but brands are probably seeing their engagement levels on the platform changing. I know personally with my couple channels that I have, I've seen the engagement change a bit, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing in this context. But if you put all your eggs into one basket, you do run the risk of, you know, diminishing kind of the success of your efforts. So I really talk a lot to my clients about diversification, prioritizing that channel mix. What's the right kind of channel mix um, really based on the demographics of people that follow you on different channels? So this is where maybe own channels like your website, your blog, as well as looking at social media channels, perhaps looking at other, you know, in the book, we talk a lot about, well, what other kind of real estate do you have from email to perhaps even kind of what's happening in your stores? to what's printed on your products, as well as looking at different things like podcasting or kind of audio skills, you know, what types of things could you be investing in to actually tell stories on? And, and I think that's where businesses really need to look forward as, as the future, because what you do is you really test and learn across all of those channels. You see what's resonating. You see maybe the connectivity between them as well, because for example, you might see a lot of retailers, maybe they want to run a storytelling kind of driven campaign but they maybe want to print something on a mirror in a fitting room in a clothing store where, you know, share your story about kind of how you're getting ready for work, you know, using this hashtag. And maybe they measure the success of kind of, can they actually generate kind of user generated stories from customers through leveraging that real estate in store? You really measure what's being successful. And that's where you can actually double down a bit, maybe on specific channels, but you need to have some of that experimentation first before you can really go there. Jessica, I love the book because it is so practical. And it is set up in such a way that you can get so much value out of it. And there's all these examples. Uh, I just really like it. You know, I, I've written a lot of books. I've read a lot of books. I just really like the way it's put together. Um, the, the Laws uh, brand storytelling is an absolute must read for social pros listeners. And you break it up into a series of sort of batches of laws per the thesis, per the title. One of my favorite sections of the book is the discovery laws. And I think it's such a great point because I find that a lot of times brands and businesses have a story. It's just they don't think it's a story because they're too close to it. Can you talk a little bit about some of those laws and, and how, because people say, oh, I don't, we don't have a story. It's like, no, you do. It just doesn't seem like a story to you. Yes. And that's the thing is, you know, the first question I get, especially when I'm speaking or consulting around storytelling is, well, where do we find great stories? And you as someone within your business really needs to adopt the mindset of a journalist. You need to be observing what's happening around you. You need to get to know everyone within your company. Um, you need to do a lot of like networking and one-to-one -one meetings and ask for advice. You know, I remember when I first started at Dunkin' Donuts, my, my boss at the time, she asked me to do kind of coffee breaks. I mean, the irony of working for a coffee company, right? But she's like, do coffee meetings with these 20 people across the company. And she really set me up for success there because she had me immediately start to meet with them. I got to get to know them. I learned about what they were doing. I started hearing all these amazing stories coming out. So what if you could take that inspiration and start to get meet people across your company, people that are doing very different things and interesting things, I guarantee you, you would find 
you know, tons of interesting kind of stories. And, you know, you don't really, you also want to think beyond just the walls of your organization. And obviously, you know, there are, you know, kind of huge organizations with offices around the world, but also think about kind of go speak to your employees, but also think about what are your customer kind of case studies, study, you know, stories from your partners, other industry peers, influencers that love your products. Why are you doing specific things that you're doing? Like what nonprofits are you donating for? What causes do you stand for? All of those things could actually result in remarkable stories. And that's what's really sparked me. And especially when I was at kind of Dunkin' Donuts, or I guess now we should say Dunkin', you know, we started, once we started creating that culture internally of, you know, I was running the blog and I started getting a lot of proactive suggestions saying, hey, you know, there's this amazing crew member in this store in Massachusetts that's been there for 25 years and she's noticed this really interesting trend and you should really talk to her. And the field marketing managers and the operations managers were the ones that started feeding these stories to me because I created the culture of getting to know them. So that's really the advice I give to people. It's not an easy, it's it's easier said than done, but you have to start somewhere. And the more that people start seeing these stories being told, the more people will want to volunteer them. Yeah, when they realize that there's that, it's actually a safe space, right? And that and that those stories are yeah. are treasured and welcomed. It's amazing they start coming out of the woodwork. One of the things that Adam and I wanted to talk to you about is because you've now been in the UK for three and a half years. If you have observed any storytelling differences between US brands and brands in uh, in Britain or EMEA at large. Absolutely. Sure. You know, we, we put a ton of examples from the UK in our book. I think selfishly, when you're living somewhere, of course, you're kind of immersed in the local media culture. And you know what I would say after living in the UK for three and a half years, you know, the Brits definitely have a very distinct kind of sense of humor and ways of communicating. If you ever want to get a little bit of a fun insight into British culture, there's a Twitter account called uh, So Very British Problems. <laughs> and it, it is a very self-deprecating look at maybe some some of the some things you may, might not necessarily realize about you know kind of British culture are people maybe are a bit shyer in some ways and have different kind of self-deprecating or a bit kind of a um, kind of a sharp and fun sense of humor. So you just have to kind of understand some of those quirks, and that's where maybe you see some of that playfulness coming through in in the campaigns. So I think I mentioned it with the Oreo one; they really focused on a timely event in the UK. You actually with that eclipse, you actually couldn't see that in in the US, but but there was one that we highlighted in the book that came from Tesco. And Jay, I think you're going to love this example. I think I actually covered this for Convince and Convert as well. So Tesco has the most brilliant customer service strategy. They're very used to responding to very cheeky and funny customer complaints on their Facebook page. And so much so, they've actually created this culture where now customers actually want to be a bit cheekier in how they how they talk about their customer service complaints. And one that I absolutely loved was there was this man that found a worm in his cucumber. And he actually named it William and decided to have this entire kind of worm funeral for for kind of William the Worm. And Tesco was so touched by it <laughs> that they actually sent him a sympathy card with a poem on it. <laughs> and then, you know, another example from Tesco as well is a great. woman... Fa- I mean, how great is that though? Like when you actually start telling little story, you, you know, brands could look at customer service issues as a negative. We want to immediately take this offline we, we don't want to shine a spotlight on this. We just kind of want to solve the issue and move on to kind of the next. And, and I think what was so brilliant about that is if you actually looked at the engagement of 
every single back and forth between the customer and Tesco about this, they were getting thousands and thousands of likes and subsequent comments. And it was almost as the page turns where people were like, how is Tesco going to respond next? How is the customer going to respond next? And then they start seeing pictures of like the little backyard burial they had for William the Worm and the Cucumber, the sympathy card with the poem that Tesco sent. And it became this wonderful kind of storytelling endeavor based off of a customer service inquiry. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, if you are a grocery store, so, you know, if for people who are wondering what is Tesco, why is there a worm in the cucumber? They are a grocery store, um, very much like a stop and shop or something, you know, 7-Eleven, maybe 7-Eleven stop and shop hybrid in the U.S. And customer service complaints are going to happen. When you have that many customers shopping at you each and every day, it, it really comes down to how you handle it. And I love that they've created this culture where they write poems back to customers. They say, I'm so sorry about this. And they answer in a very clever way. You know, there was another one where there's this delicacy in the UK where there's this thing called a scotch egg. And it is literally an egg. egg. Mm-hmm. They are actually delicious. Like, yes. I was very skeptical at first, but I think if you come to the UK, Breaded you have fried to try egg with sausage in the middle. Yes, right? and Sorry. tweet Jay and I when when you've tried one with your picture yeah. of you trying yeah. one. Um, but yes, it's an egg breaded and fried. They can be kind of just with the egg, or they can also have sausage inside of them with the egg. Also surprisingly delicious. delicious. But a customer actually got a hollow scotch egg. And she was actually sharing this picture where she was like, Tesco, it looks like it is mocking me. You know, like like basically almost like the O emoji, like the kind of the shocked emoji with the O face. Like it, it is mocking me. <laughs> and they're like, no, we actually think it's screaming at you where is my egg? <laughs> and they wrote this, you know, entire Shakespearean poem back to, back to her, which I actually had to read out loud when we were filming our audiobook. And it's like, oh, egg, oh, egg, wherefore out thou, thou egg, deny thy breadcrumbs. And, and it goes on. And imagine me recording the audiobook for our book with Ekaterina next to me, trying not to giggle as we get through an entire Shakespearean poem about a hollow scotch egg. <laughs> so, you know, and I love that. And I think the one thing I will say, though, is I did actually give some constructive criticism to Tesco in the book because their customer service strategy is so on point and they tell these amazing stories around customer service complaints. But then you go on their social media channels and honestly, the content's not bad, but it's a bit dry. It's just all about recipes and food and celebrating food. And it's like, if some of these things are getting tens of thousands of likes and there's articles in the newspaper in the UK being generated about somebody's hollow scotch egg, wouldn't you want to maximize that a bit and maybe bring some of that spirit into your your content strategy? So that's where I've actually dug into them a bit because I think, you know, we almost get a bit too rigid in our ways as companies. And if we see that there's these amazing copywriters and creative spirits on the customer service team, what else could they do for us? How can we bring them into the fold and bring that spirit into other things that we do? Sometimes people's reactive social feels a lot different than their proactive social. And that's because in some cases, as as listeners know, it's a different team, right? It's literally a different team, maybe even in a different location with a different DNA and a different leadership style and things like that. But from the consumer's perspective, they're like, wow, this feels a little strange because this actually feels like two different companies, which which is not really the the ideal set of circumstances. No, not at all. I think you brought up something, Jessica, that's very interesting. And I think your book uh, that you and Ekaterina uh, wrote kind of articulates that. And that is so much of this is that culture. It is about instilling that that culture in an organization, whereas whether it's the customer service people, whether it's the marketing people, whether it's the other frontline employees, 
they, they can be cheeky. They can be appropriate. And I want to ask you how, when you work with organizations, you create or try to facilitate that, that, that spirit of, of culture. We've talked about two things here. We've talked about, you know, getting all these different parts of the organization to do this, but also to the point that, uh, that Jay brought up earlier, when you're dealing with a multi-region, multinational company, everybody kind of sees sarcasm. Everybody sees humor a little bit differently. How do you kind of reconcile and bring all that together? Yeah. So a lot of what we talk about in the book is you actually can look to the culture of your organization to inspire your storytelling because the culture you create internally will have such an impact on your company's reputation externally. So, you know, we highlight companies like Zappos and HubSpot that have these kind of amazing kind of focus on the company culture. And that becomes kind of a core value and a story that they live, right? So Zappos, all of their brand storytelling is around their culture and how they create their employees. How However, you know, for other companies, it might actually, it might be a bit different. And we actually have, in the second chapter of our book, we have kind of the storytelling framework. And we talk a lot about kind of codes of culture as well, and looking about how you can tap into pop culture and things that are happening kind of in the world and, and really the right way to do that and how to kind of really look at the customer insights around your business, your products, what's going on in the world as, you know, the right way to kind of shape how you go in a direction with storytelling, because I think there needs to be a happy medium between the two because the culture you have internally plus kind of what's happening in the world and how customers are perceiving you all needs to be taken into account before you can really kind of tell stories that resonate, if that makes sense. We spotlight a few examples in the book of companies that really go too far down the path between, you know, projecting a specific image. I don't know if you guys remember Radio Shack when they decided they were going to rebrand themselves as the Shack. And, and they were like, this is a nickname that our customers call us. And customers were like, no, we don't. Yeah, we don't actually call that. you that. No. Nobody that says out, that. By the way. Yeah. And, yeah. and the Shack takes us to this deep, dark place where like bad things happen. So, yeah. you know, it completely... <laughs> Completely, it completely just kind of crashed and burned on them. So I think okay, you need do to you have think, that. Okay, do, do customers call Dunkin' Donuts Dunkin' or is that the same situation? Actually, I will tell you they do. So, you know, it's tough for me. It's, it, I have to be careful because I'm not employed by them anymore. But, you know, when Which I was there running social media... <laughs> I can just see the article now. Former social media manager says blank. Um, but no, actually, when I was working there, customers do call them Duncan. You know, they call them Duncan. They call them DD. You know, I'm going to go. I, I have to go to Duncan today. I'm going on my Duncan run. So it very much is ingrained in the culture. So I would say when I saw that they made that announcement, I wasn't really surprised. You know, and I think actually, if you think about brand positioning internationally as well. When you have a brand name like Dunkin' Donuts and you have donuts in your name, when you go to markets where your brand equity isn't kind of as strong as say in the United States, they just think, oh, you're a donut shop. But actually, you know, they do make amazing donuts and they're always going to make amazing donuts. But we actually have amazing coffee. We have amazing breakfast sandwiches. So I think it does actually, you know, it does actually help when you go into new markets where the brand's not known as well. It allows you to kind of start that story with maybe more of a blank canvas, I would say. One of yeah. the things you, you talked about in the book that I found a little bit surprising is that you say when you're working on your stories and your social media, 
that you shouldn't benchmark against industry peers. And that is sort of a fundamental kind of piece of the social media audit and analysis program typically is, all right, how are we doing versus other people who sell donuts or other grocery stores or other auto dealers, what have you? And you say, don't worry about that so much. Why do you say that? You know, we say that because we want you to drive, we want you to be true to your business and drive innovation in the spirit of kind of who you are, what's your purpose, kind of what's your culture and how do you want to tell the story of what makes your organization thrive? I think at a high level, especially when you're at a large company, there's always going to be an element of kind of that benchmark measuring, you know, how do we stack up compared to our competitors and our peers? But when you think about telling great stories, if you're only kind of measuring yourself against your competitors and not really thinking out of the box, I think you're missing the mark and you're missing an opportunity to really take it to the next level. Well, and certainly you can't copy somebody else's. <laughs> no, story, imagine. Right? I mean, yeah. you might be able to copy some of their some of their tactics or approaches, but you can't be like, yeah, I'm gonna. Even though I don't sell cookies, I'm going to use this Oreo strategy. That that uh, that doesn't really make well, sense. Well, and right, but how much did that happen? Right, because the minute Oreo did the dunk in the dark, oh, every other business out there was like, "What is my dunk in the dark moment going to be?" And you know, it's tough because you know, we, we speak at conferences, we write books, we're sharing kind of the best practices of other businesses. And, and what I, I always think about the idea of like borrowing brilliance, how can you take a great idea and make it your own and not necessarily say, okay, well, we're just going to try and newsjack everything. We're going to, you know, we're going to replicate what Ario did. We're going to have 365 degree days of, you know, of Ford and the car painted, Dr. Scholes. you know, yeah. Or donuts, you know, <laughs> donuts, you know what I, so you could do that with basically many consumer products or brands, right? But it's not going to resonate, right? And you have to remember, consumers are faced with more messages across more channels than ever before. And if you truly want to differentiate yourself, you have to be unique. You have to be special. And that's why we're really trying to lay down the law in this book and push businesses to step out of their comfort zones a bit and really think about what are those once in a lifetime stories that are unique to my business? What makes me special? What makes me different? What's my unique value proposition that I'm not just trying to copy competitor X, Y, or Z and, you know, basically kind of, you know, respond back to them. I mean, you do see some businesses, you know, like Wendy's out there trolling other brands and that's been kind of a, a really kind of clever endeavor, but you know, again, if every business just starts trolling each other, we're just going to be fighting all day on social and no one's going to really care anymore. So it's working really well for them because they're first to market. So I think, you know, you have to really go back to the drawing board and think about what's unique to you. And that's what we're really trying to do with this book. I love it. I don't know everything, but I do know this. Same is lame as we talked about. <laughs> I love that. I might, I might steal you and steal free. that and quote you on that steal, one. <laughs> new title, ladies and gentlemen. Jessica Jolio, who is the extraordinary co-author of The Laws of Brand Storytelling, a book that I cannot recommend to you enough, Social Pros listeners. I guarantee you are going to love it. You're going to keep it on your desk, highlight it, mark all the pages that apply to your brand. You're going to love it. Go get it right now. It's available all the places and ways that books are available, including in audio read by Jess and her co-author, Katrina Walter. Last two questions. The questions that we ask everybody on the show, Jessica, first one, what one tip would you give somebody looking to become a social pro? Ooh, I would give them the tip of, I would say, oh, this is such a tough one. I feel like I have like 10 in my mind right now and I have to narrow it down. But you know what I would say? I think you really, you really need to stay true to yourself. I think, you know, the, the biggest differentiator in my career is, 
you know, I, my whole story is I actually started out by running a lifestyle blog called The Savvy Bostonian. I became a micro-influencer in Boston before that was actually a thing in social media. And you know what? I did that because I was always very creative. I loved writing. I loved storytelling. I loved kind of sharing content that I felt added value to people's lives. And that to me was always my North Star. And I think if you're an aspiring social pro, I think you need to really think about why you want to get into the business, why you love social media, what gets you excited about social media, and how can you really specialize in that area that excites you about social media? You know, as you advance in your career, you really need do need to be well-rounded. But I think when you're starting out, you know, I'll give an example. When I was at Duncan, I had an intern who was incredibly creative with video. And he actually helped us launch our, our Snapchat and our Vine because he was so amazing and saw video in a different way. So I think if you can specialize in that way, it's going to really help you advance in your career and, and really kind of showcase to an employer kind of what differentiates you and allow you to make your unique mark on a business. So that's the best tip I can give you is start there and then really invest in learning in the rest of the business and become well-rounded from that kind of USP that you have at the start. I love it. Last question, Jessica Jolio, Laws of Brand Storytelling, go get it, is if you could do a video call with any living person, who would it be and why? Gosh, you know what? I'm struggling with this one and I'm sure I could come up with a better answer. But, you know, I think I said this the last time I was on Social Pros, but I still stick by it. And it's Oprah, because I just think she was one of the first great storytellers and just the charisma and the way that you feel like you know her and you're a friend of hers. And she just has this warm kind of way of telling stories and speaking with credibility and authenticity that I think we can all learn from and mirror kind of in our lives and in our work. The most influential celebrity by far, according to the research that we did in the book Talk Triggers, uh, wasn't even close. It was Oprah and then a big giant gap. Um, So well said. Yes, we need Oprah on the show. Adam, surely... Mark Benioff knows Oprah and you could just call your boss's boss and say, we need Oprah on the show. We we need Oprah. I remember Oprah when she was a reporter at WSM TV in Nashville, where I grew up, man, if you could have just, she was in the field. Pat Sajak was on weather and John Tesh on sports. Wow. That's a powerhouse lineup, man. That is like an unbelievable crew. Late seventies, Nashville, Tennessee. Wow. That is impressive. You're, you're moments away from greatness, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. I watched, I watched the programming. Therefore I am close enough. Close enough. Jessica, congratulations on a terrific book. Fantastic to have you back on the show. Uh, Again, everybody go grab the laws of brand storytelling. Anything else you want people to know about the book or where to get it or anything like that before we let you go? Sure. The book is available on Amazon and in select retailers in the U.S. So go out and find it. If you have any questions at all, Ekaterina and I welcome kind of feedback on social media, your questions. So please keep them coming to us. Fantastic. Go get it, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much for being here. We have another fantastic guest next week on Social Pros. Don't forget, go to socialpros.com to listen to every single episode going back forever and ever and ever, including, I mentioned, uh, Carmen Hill from Cisco. Uh, You can go grab that episode as well as tons of other ones. As I mentioned recently, uh, we are going to very soon start doing the show on video on YouTube. So you'll be able to see, see our guests and Adam and myself. So look for that coming up shortly. Until then, I am Jay Bear from Kim Convert. He is Adam Brown from Salesforce Marketing Cloud, and this has been Social Pros. <laughs>